Again, Ruth chapter 2, verse 14 to the end of the chapter. This is God's word. Listen to it. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us all that we need in your word. Your word is like gold. It is better than gold. It is sweeter than honey. And now, O Lord, we pray that you would teach us from your word, that you would feed us. And that using your word, you would transform us, that you would conform us into the likeness and image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let me start out this morning, and you don't have to answer aloud if you'd rather not, but let me start out this morning by asking you a question. How many of you have ever suffered from buyer's remorse? How many of you have been taken in by the the wonderful advertisements, by the schemes of the marketers, and have found something that you just thought you could not live without. And then when you get at home, after paying some uh, obscene amount of money for this gadget or device or whatever it might be, you get at home and you realize that it just does not, it cannot live up to the expectations that you have for it, the expectations that were cultivated within you by these marketers. How many of you have ever felt that? How many of you have taken the thing back and gotten your money back when you realized that it just was incapable? It didn't live up to your expectations. It fell far short 
Well, it could be that some of you have. It could be that some of you in your pride or, or for whatever reason have, have, have denied the fact, uh, have, have tried to ignore the fact that it doesn't live up to your expectations. And it is a fact that rarely in our day does the experience of a thing exceed the hype that surrounds the thing. Now, men, you know this. We are so subject to the latest gadget and technology, and so often we're taught that this, this device will be the answer to all of our problems, all of our, uh, all of our scheduling problems, or make us a more efficient worker, or whatever else, and we get the thing, and we can't even figure out how to work it. We're so subject, we're so easily uh, led astray by these things. The hype so rarely lives up in our own experience. And this experience will allow us, if we're not careful, to color our understanding of God's Word. Doesn't it? The promises of God's Word. The things that the Lord tells us in the Bible. If we are not careful, we will allow the world and what it does to us to jade the way that we view the promises of God. And so we read a passage like uh, this morning's passage. We read it. And how many of you, as you were reading through this, you saw what was going on here and the detail and the abundance of the Lord's provision for these two poor women? Or were we, because of where we are and who we are and because of the forces that are at play upon us, did we just sort of gloss over it and not realize the significance of of what is taking place, what God has done for Ruth and Naomi. Well, the point of this morning's sermon is to make you aware of it. Now, we might downplay or ignore the significance of what this passage teaches us about how God works in their lives and how He works in our lives. We've been disappointed again and again by the hype. Nothing lives up to the expectations. And we refuse to let ourselves get burned again. And this happens. We don't want to let it happen to us with God. So we keep our expectations low. And we read things about God wonderfully and abundantly supplying the needs of His people. And we simply do not believe it. We refuse to believe that God works in this way or that He still does this. And because of all this, it is important to remember whom it is that we're talking about here in this passage. Are we talking about Ruth? Are we talking about Naomi? Are we talking about Boaz? No. The main character in this chapter, in this book, is God himself. It is God himself. And this book is is a depiction in narrative style, in in storytelling style, of how God in history has carried out the promises that he has made to his people. We focus on God. That is our goal every day. It should be our goal every day of our lives. And so the book of Ruth is about how God has fulfilled all of these grand promises in the lives of these three people who lived well over 3,000 years ago. So this morning's passage is about how God does live up to the hype. He lives up to his own hype, his own promises, all of those amazing things that he promised in the law, in Deuteronomy, in Leviticus, in Exodus, throughout the Bible. It is a proof, it is a testament to what he does. It is about how he far exceeds Ruth's and Naomi's wildest expectations for them. They could never imagine what he would do for them. 
And it is about how he does the same for all people, including you and me. And so this morning, as we go through this passage, I want you to think on on this one truth. And I take it from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. This passage teaches us that God is able and willing to do exceedingly more than all that his people can ask or imagine. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God can do more for you than you can ask or imagine? That is what this passage teaches. God is able and willing to do exceedingly more than all that his people can ask or imagine. That is the promise of his word. And that is what this passage teaches you and me this morning. And so I've just divided this up into three sections. We're deviating a little bit from how I normally organize things, less in terms of divided by verses, more in terms of divided by ideas. And so the first section is God's care for Ruth and Naomi. We'll just go through the passage. We'll look at it bit by bit. The section, second section is overabundance of blessing. And then the third section is our kinsman redeemer. So first, God's care for Ruth and Naomi. Second, overabundance of blessing. And third, our kinsman redeemer. Well, let's look at God's care for Ruth and Naomi. And I want to start out by giving us a quick refresher of what has taken place in the book so far. The previous week's passages. You all know this in chapter 1. A famine has hit Bethlehem. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, uh, his, his wife Naomi, their two sons, Kilion and Malon, they decide they're going to leave Bethlehem. They're going to leave Judah. They're going to go to Moab. They're going to sojourn in the fields there and try to exist off of the land. Now, Moab is not a part of Israel. And in many ways, it's a hostile country to Israelites. They were, the, the Moabites were looked down upon by Israel. While in Moab, Naomi's two sons married. They married Ruth and Orpah. And then Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died. And sometime after that, the two sons died as well. And so there was Naomi left uh, in a strange land with these two daughters-in-law. We don't know how well she knew them. They were all she had. Well, sometime after this, she heard a rumor that God had visited his people in Bethlehem in Judah. He had visited them and brought about harvest. And so Naomi, she goes out on a limb here. Is the rumor rumor true? She doesn't know. But we read that she turns. The word there is repent. She turns to the Lord and she returns to the land of her fathers. And along with her go Ruth and Naomi. And as they reach the border, we can only assume the border between Moab and Israel, uh, Naomi entreats her daughters-in-law to go back, to go back to their families, their fathers and mothers. And Orpah takes her up on it and heads home. And as they're staring at the back of Orpah, Naomi entreats Ruth to go and follow her, and Ruth refuses. And what does she say? Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and I will be buried with you. Ruth has professed her faith in Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel. He is her God. She no longer serves the God or the gods of Moab. And so they go on into Bethlehem. They make it home. And the next day, Ruth gets up early. And she decides to go to the fields uh, in and around the area of Bethlehem to glean. She's going to pick up. 
She's going to do what poor people do and pick up behind the harvesters. And unwittingly, she ends up in the fields of Boaz. And then Boaz, this man who she does not know, shows up. He wants to know what's going on. Who is this strange woman in my fields? And his workers tell her who she is, that she is the daughter-in-law of Naomi. And then you see this amazing response on Boaz's part. He extends his provision to her. He tells her to glean in his field. He extends his protection over her. He tells his young men not to touch her. He says, you will be safe in my field. You don't go anywhere else. He extends over her the refuge and the care, the wings of the Lord God. See, Boaz knows at this point who she is, and he knows that he is the kinsman redeemer of Naomi. And so he cares for this woman who has shown so much love and faithfulness to her mother-in-law. Now, this morning's passage picks up a short time after uh, last week's passage ended. The time for the noon meal has arrived. Ruth has been gleaning. She's now talked to Boaz. And now there's the noon meal. Now, we can only imagine Ruth had nothing. She wasn't expecting to eat. She was expecting to glean. And Boaz invites her in. And he says, sit down beside my harvesters. Sit down. Take your morsel. Dip it in, the, in the, this, this wine. And the text says there in verse uh, 14 that she, that she had more than she could eat. She was satisfied. She ate this starving woman who had been working since dawn. Ate until she could eat no more. And what does the text say? She had food left over. Now here we see what God is doing through Boaz to provide for her. Now imagine how you would feel. We don't know how long it was going on, but Ruth and Naomi were existing. They were surviving on shortened rations. They didn't have enough food. They had no money. They had nothing with which to sustain themselves. And so she ate and ate. But when she was finished, she got up promptly and she went back to the fields to glean. And as she was going... She probably heard Boaz's voice in the background. His, his kindness to her was not exhausted with this meal. His kindness to her was not exhausted by offering protection for her. What does he tell his workers? He says in verses 15 to 16, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And then he goes further. And let her also pull out from the sheaves, pull out from the bundles, and leave for her stalks to glean from. Now, do not rebuke her. You see, the gleaners, they were supposed to just go around the edge of the field. They were supposed to pick up what was left behind from the edges. And then if, if the reapers happened to leave something behind in the, in the field, if they happened to forget, then the gleaners could pick that up. They were not entitled to it. This is not something that the law required of Boaz. <coughs> Boaz was commanding his men to let her come in among the sheaves, to pick up off the ground, the, 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 from that high, highly concentrated uh, grouping of, of sheaves, these stalks of barley, where she would find a lot of the barley seed. He commanded his men to intentionally forget some of these sheaves, some of the stalks, so that she could come behind and pick them up. Now, Boaz wanted Ruth, who had come into his country empty, 
to leave his field full. He wanted her to leave being weighed down with the provision that he was giving to her. No longer weighed down with the burden of trying to provide for her and her mother-in-law. Weighed down with his glorious blessing. And Ruth did. She left his field full. After a day's worth of gleaning, she beat out the barley, it says. She, she took the barley, she laid it out on the threshing floor, so a hardened area made of rocks, and she took a stick and she beat all the husks off of the kernels. And after that, she had, it says, one ephah of barley, about 30 pounds, about two-thirds of a bushel, a large bag of barley. And you can only imagine she puts it in her shawl and she slings it over her back to carry it home. This amount of barley, in one day that she gleaned, this amount of barley was the equivalent of the harvester's wages for an entire month. For men, women received half that amount. And she did it in a day. And you can only imagine the implication here with what Boaz has, has, has said in his standing orders is that this is roughly what she will bring home every day that she reaps, every day that she gleans. She'll bring home more than what the reapers have earned in an entire month for her and her mother-in-law. She and Naomi were no longer living on the edge of starvation. They were no longer barely getting by. And so, at the end of the day, Ruth bundled it up, she threw it over her shoulder, she headed home. And Naomi catches sight of her, and she sees this big bundle over her shoulder. Now, 30 pounds is a lot of weight to carry over a great distance, but nothing more than women carry every day when they're carrying toddlers around. And so, Ruth makes it back home. And she's astonished. She can't believe it. But what's more... It's almost as if Ruth surprises her. She pulls out from somewhere in the folds of her outfit, she pulls out the leftovers from her meal at noon. This baked barley. Naomi would have, sat, she would have been satisfied just to nibble on the barley that, that Ruth had brought home from the fields, unbaked, uncooked, undried. She would have been happy to do that. She had uh, the, these roasted grains of barley, a little bit of the wine. She was providing for her mother-in-law. And Naomi is almost tongue-tied as she starts asking Ruth questions. She can't believe it. She's in shock. She says she's tripping over herself as she asks her, Where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And at this point, she does not know, does she? She's not privy to what the narrator knows. She's not privy to what we know as the reader. She does not know. And so, when Ruth answers her, if she was surprised by the, the volume of barley that Ruth has come back with, if she's surprised by the fact that Ruth pulls out a meal for her, a ready-made meal for her, then she's even more surprised by Ruth's answer to her questions. Boaz. Boaz. Well, we know who Boaz is. We've been told at the beginning of chapter 2. We've been let in on the secret. Naomi doesn't know. Excuse me, Ruth doesn't know. She hasn't a clue about this man's relation to her through Naomi. Of all the people, of all the fields that Ruth could have landed in to glean, 
Of all the people who could have owned the field, it was Boaz. And in verse 20, Naomi blesses Boaz. She says, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi breaks out. She's blessing Boaz, but she's also praising God, isn't she? Look at what's going on here. You don't, it, it's unclear who the verse is talking about when it says, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Is she talking about Boaz? Is she talking about the Lord? She's talking about both here. Naomi understands what's going on. She understands that Boaz is being used by the Lord to benefit the two of them. Naomi sees the hand of God in this wonderful turn of events. She sees what God is doing. She hasn't had any good news for a long, long time, has she? For a long, long time. Not since she heard that the Lord had visited his people. And she didn't know whether to believe that or not. She is bereft. And now, she's made full. She realizes that God has not forsaken her. That he has not left her in the dust of poverty and starvation. He has provided her with sustenance for the foreseeable future. She can, they can parcel this out over months if they had to. Nor has he forsaken her husband and her sons. You see, her thankfulness goes beyond the fact that God has provided for her material needs, for the hunger that she's feeling. Her thankfulness goes beyond that. She knows that the responsibility of her husbands and her sons are going to be taken up by Boaz. She knows it. We don't know how she knows it, but she knows. She sees the favor with which Boaz has treated Ruth. She understands that he is their kinsman redeemer, that he is a near relative, that he has a responsibility, and that he obviously takes that responsibility seriously. And we don't know what motivated Boaz. We don't know if there was some sort of romantic attraction. There may have been. But there was also a strong sense of, of responsibility there for his kinsperson, for his kinspeople. And so, Naomi then reveals to Ruth quite a surprise, doesn't she? She says, the man is a close relative of ours. He is our redeemer. One of our redeemers. And you see, this reveals more about God than it does about Boaz. Think about this. God in his word, God in his law, (laughs) set up this system, this this, uh, system of kinsman redeemer in order to provide for his people. Because as you well know, people have always found themselves in dire situations in life. Whether it's legal, whether it's financial, whether it's interpersonal relationships that have gone south. People constantly throughout the earth's history, and we see it even today in a very pronounced way, people have found themselves in dire straits, in need. And often they're helpless to get themselves out. They're without hope in the world. And so God... In the middle of Leviticus, of all places. Leviticus, which is so often looked to as as the darkest part of the law. In the middle of Leviticus, God provides for his people through the system of kinsmen redeemers. In Leviticus chapter 25, verses 23 to 55. It's in that context where God is establishing the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee. 
The seventh, seventh year was a Sabbath. The 50th year was a year of Jubilee. Slaves were set free. Debts were canceled. And in that context, he then starts talking about the role of the kinsman redeemer in the family, in the clans of Israel. The kinsman redeemer was an advocate who would step in to help a relative who had fallen on hard times. And that's where you see it. If a relative had gone into debt, if they had, to, uh, had fallen into poverty and they needed to sell a field, this kinsman redeemer would step in to buy it back if he had the financial means. If, this, if, a, if a relative had had to sell themselves into slavery in order to make ends meet, the kinsman redeemer would step in and buy them back out of slavery and allow them to work off their debt without any kind of interest. They would earn a day's wages for their work. If, if a relative had gotten themselves into some sort of legal trouble, the kinsman redeemer would step in as an advocate on their behalf to work through the difficulties. This is a gracious provision on the part of God for his people. How often have you felt utterly alone in a situation? Have you ever had to go to court by yourself? For a, I can remember as a teenager going to court for the first time as a, for a traffic ticket and feeling completely lost, and I was so relieved when my father said he'd come with me. We have no clue how to navigate these things by ourselves. We need an advocate. We need a helper. We need someone to speak on our behalf when we are helpless. Now this provision of kinsman redeemer clearly shows the love and the compassion of God. He loves his people. He loves his church, the Israel of God. He loves Ruth and Naomi. He loves you. He is a gracious God. He is steadfast in his love. And this provision for this close relative who will redeem their relatives out of trouble, out of tight spots, out of poverty, it is a gracious, gracious provision. Well, in verse 21, Ruth tells Naomi more about how Boaz uh, treated her, that he, said, uh, that he said she should keep close to his young men so that she would not uh, be harmed until they finished all the harvest, all the harvest, not just that day, not just the barley harvest, all the harvest. Well, Naomi modifies his instructions. It's sort of an interesting thing that she does here. She sort of, in a slight way, now he has told, Boaz has told her to stick close to his young women as well. But she kind of goes in, she modifies it a little bit. Ruth hadn't told her what Boaz said about the young women. And Naomi says, it is better for you to stay with the young women. Stay with the young women. Naomi maybe doesn't know that Boaz has forbidden the men to touch her, to do anything to her. Now what's Naomi thinking here? We don't know. We can only guess. She is a schemer. We'll find out in chapter 3. And so we can only imagine that right now the seeds have been, have been planted in her mind. The wheels are turning. What is she going to do? Maybe she sees a possibility here that Boaz will marry Ruth. And so she tells her to go with the young women. She doesn't want there to be any competition for affection that Boaz may feel for Ruth. She doesn't want Ruth to get involved with any of the young men there. Glean with the women. Stay with them. Keep yourself safe. Keep yourself ready for Boaz. And the chapter ends by telling us that Ruth did indeed glean with the young women. She stayed with the women of Boaz. And she gleaned with them until the end of the barley and the wheat harvest. She spent about eight, uh, eight weeks 
gleaning in the fields. And by the end of that time, she would have gleaned enough. If, if Boaz's generosity held out, which it, which it does, we see later, she would have gleaned enough to have lasted Naomi and Ruth well over a year of provision. Well over a year. In eight weeks. And then the last verse of the chapter says that Ruth lived with Naomi. And there's a change, isn't there, in this relationship. Naomi no longer refers to Ruth as her daughter-in-law. She's her daughter. It is well, my daughter, that you stay with the young women. There's a closeness here. She has been welcomed into the family of God, and Naomi knows it. She's no longer a daughter-in-law. She is a daughter. She is a, a child of the Most High God. Well, Naomi said in chapter 1, verse 21, that she went away full, but the Lord brought her back empty. At the end of this chapter, the Lord has made her full. And it goes well beyond having food in the cupboard. The Lord has given her hope again. The Lord has made her realize that he fulfills the promises to his people. Well, let's look for a short time about this idea of the overabundance of blessing. Now, it would be a mistake for us to focus solely on the material abundance of God's blessing poured out on Ruth and Naomi. And that's largely what we've done to this point. The chapter, the passage sort of focuses us in on the amount of food, the barley that, that Ruth has gleaned. The food that Boaz has given to her. But it would be a mistake to just sit there. Ruth and Naomi don't make that mistake and neither should we. But you can imagine, you have probably heard how preachers will fixate on the material blessing. These preachers of the prosperity gospel. They'll say that God's word promises material blessing, showers of material blessing. They say, sow with your money and you will reap a hundredfold. Well, the problem with this thinking is that the theocracy of ancient Israel under the old covenant is very, very different from the way that God works with his people under the new. We are not under a theocracy. We do not have the Lord God sitting on a throne as the head of our country. But you see, God is Israel's king. He had bound himself by the covenant to provide for his people. He was their king. This was the responsibility of kings. They made sure their people were protected and fed. And so in a theocracy in Israel, material blessing and spiritual blessing were equal with one another. The sign that you were spiritually blessed was that you were being materially blessed with an abundance of provision. But that did not mean that God did not bless his, his people spiritually. Naomi was certainly amazed at the abundance of grain that Ruth brought home. But she was more amazed that God had seen fit to provide this kinsman redeemer for her. She was more amazed by his orchestration of the events so that they would not be left without an heir. And God's provision of this kinsman redeemer for her and for Ruth brought about praise now, we don't live in a theocracy here. There's no longer any theocracy on earth. God has set up the governments of this earth as rulers over us. There is no one-to-one -one equation any longer between material blessing and spiritual blessing. That does not mean that God doesn't use material blessings to bless us. 
But God can use material abundance to curse us as well. We can go grow lazy and complacent because of the overabundance of material wealth. And there can be people in impoverished nations who are far more blessed spiritually than we are. Now, poverty does not make one holy or sanctified to the Lord. That's not what I'm saying. You're not better if you're poor. You're not worse if you're wealthy. That's not it. But don't mistake the two. Don't mistake material blessing for spiritual blessing. Don't think that that's all there is in this life. There's far more for you. If you are poor, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are condemned by God. If you are wealthy, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are blessed by God. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, it doesn't matter where you are on the economic ladder. You are no longer condemned. And you stand before God as his child. And we are to praise God from whom all blessings flow. All of our blessings. Whether wealth or poverty. Whether spiritual or material. All the blessings that he gives us. We are to praise him. Because fundamentally. And at its most important level. Every believer in Christ is rich in Christ. The church doesn't display her wealth with ornate buildings, with golden chalices and, and, and instruments and vessels. But our wealth is displayed on every day that we open his word, isn't it? The Lord Jesus, when he quoted uh, Deuteronomy 8.3, said, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We do not live in a time where prophets of God declare his word. We have it all written down right here for us. This is a rich spiritual blessing. This is worth its weight in gold for you. Do you believe that? We just read Psalm 19. That's what the word says. More precious than gold. Sweeter than honey is God's word. We have been blessed richly, overabundantly. And what's more... We don't have to travel all the way to Jerusalem to worship God. We don't have to travel all the way there to meet with God. We can meet with God in this place this morning. We can worship Him in spirit and in truth. We don't have to make a pilgrimage. He meets with us where we are. Do you understand what a blessing this is? Do you appreciate it with all the proper reverence and thankfulness? We don't live in a time when, like Adam and Eve, God walks among us. But each of us who has Jesus Christ, who believes in Jesus Christ, has the Holy Spirit in our heart. Do you believe that? What does that mean to you, that God could live inside you? That you are the temple of the Lord? The Holy Spirit was poured out en masse upon God's people at Pentecost. And God continues to pour His Holy Spirit out upon those who believe in Christ. To this day. And so we undervalue what it means to have the Holy Spirit living in our hearts. We take it for granted. It's old news. No, it's not. It's crucial to who you are as a believer in Christ. Without the Holy Spirit, you would be an orphan. 
You would be lost, hopeless in the world. How else have you been blessed? How else have we been blessed? How has God seen fit to bless the church? Jesus in his wisdom established the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to nourish us. And even though what you will receive this morning will do nothing to satisfy your physical hunger, you're given a little piece of bread and a tiny cup of juice. It will satisfy you spiritually. It will feed you. It will nourish your faith as you partake of it in faith. It is a supper for your soul. And yet so often it is seen as a bare memorial by God's people. Or it is taken to the other extreme and it's such a mysterious thing that we can't even understand it. It's hidden behind a cloud of mystery. This is a real sign and seal of the new covenant in Christ's blood. And it is a blessing to you. And we've been blessed with the sacrament of baptism. This sacrament signifies to us the cleansing that we have in Christ. It seals us for the day of redemption. These are not blessings that we should take lightly. And we have been blessed by God by placing us in a congregation of fellow believers in Christ. You're not out there on your own. You're not lone rangers. You're not by yourself. You have brothers and sisters in Christ who love you and care about you and who will stand in for you if you need it. They will pick you up if you need to be carried. You are loved in this congregation. And you have true communion with Christ Jesus. You have true communion with each other. You have people who will pray for you, who will lift you up while they are on their knees. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Christians are by far the wealthiest people who walk the face of the earth. But our wealth is not counted in dollars and cents. Let's turn and look just for a moment at our kinsman redeemer. Because the overabundance of God's spiritual blessing is evident in all of these things that I've just mentioned, but it is most evident in the fact that God has provided a kinsman redeemer for us, for you and for me. We who are outside of Israel in one sense, the Old Testament people of God. Now it should not be overlooked that Naomi in verse 20 says says that Boaz is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. She has now, as I said before, included Ruth in the family of God. Naomi is the natural-born Israelite here. Ruth is the outsider. And yet Naomi is saying that Ruth will benefit from this relationship of the kinsman-redeemer. And we too are not naturally the people of God. We are by nature now, because we are in sin, we are by nature enemies of God. And yet God has seen fit to bring us in by His grace. We are adopted as His sons and daughters. And because we are adopted, we have an elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our brother. He is our Savior. He is our kinsman redeemer. And he does all of those things and more than the kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament could possibly do. He does advocate for us. He stands as our attorney our intercessor, when the accuser, accuser brings slander against us. 
The Lord Jesus defends us. He rescues us from our slavery to sin. He buys us back. He redeems us at a a great price. The cost of his own love. But how do you receive that great benefit, that overabundance of blessing? How do you receive the blessing? You have to believe. You have to repent. The Bible says you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You must repent of your sins. You must give them up and trust in the Lord Jesus. There is no spiritual blessing for those who stand outside of Christ, those who are in open rebellion to Him, those who have not bowed the knee and have not confessed Him before men. There is no blessing. There is only weeping and gnashing of teeth in a place of darkness and misery. And so I call upon you to repent and believe and trust in the Lord. Because in Christ Jesus, your cup will run over. Your plate will be full. You, in Christ, have come from spiritual famine to spiritual fullness.